It's not a matter of Hello, Pamela Zero here. Welcome to Duck, Duck, Goose, a podcast about the book Duck. This episode includes Chapter 3, followed by a bit of music, and then some Q&A. Thanks for coming along on Duck's Journey. Duck, Chapter 3. Duck, Now. Duck and Osei entered the visitor's quarantine room and stood quietly by the door. Duck peered out from under the hood of her robe and gaped a bit at the size of the room. The walls soared up overhead, with arching supports joining impossibly high above them. Some parts of the walls were translucent, showing greenery and small ponds of water outside. There were huge round windows inset high in the walls, letting light stream in. Sounds seemed small and insignificant, and there were only a few dozen visitors. An effort had been made to section off parts of the room with gray partition areas made of a dull fabric stretched over wheeled frames. There was a makeshift kitchen area, what looked like a series of sections with beds and long tables down the center of the room with benches that reminded Duck of picnic tables back on Earth. The visitors were all clustered around one table, gesturing and apparently upset. Duck saw that they were all wearing tunics and pants. They didn't look like visitors at all to her. Where were their skin suits? Last, Osei took a deep breath and started towards the visitors, duck in tow. Well, good afternoon, all. How is the day going? boomed out Osei in a hearty, fake tone. Duck looked sideways at him under her hood. The nearest visitors turned, and Duck saw with sudden elation that it was Auntie Magda and Uncle Paulo. They were alive and safe and warm. Duck felt tears rush to her eyes, and she did her best to blink them away before they fell onto her robe and were noticed. Magdalena was a small woman with caramel-colored skin and black hair bound into a thick braid that fell to the small of her back. Apparently, it's not enough that you've imprisoned us, but now you have to experiment on us as well, she shot at Osei, glaring at him. You understand that we are willing to die rather than go back to living like we did in Burston, and like Burston, we won't hesitate to take our captors with us. No one is experimenting on anyone, a chubby humanoid with bumpy, dotted skin and what seemed to be a wreath of ears on her head interrupted Magdalena. She was wearing a light blue robe with a deep green border. Last, Osei bowed to the humanoid. Medic Srilla, he said. Indeed, no one is experimenting on anyone. Please, why is it that the ambassador feels that this is an issue? Magdalena rolled her eyes at the title of ambassador. Making up fancy titles for us does not change the fact that we're prisoners. And it's an issue because she wants to take samples. Tissue, blood, bone, hair, when does it stop? The medic raised her arms in protest and Duck noticed that there were what looked like suction cups on the palms of her hands and running up her wrists. It just takes a few seconds. It doesn't hurt and you won't be harmed. I'll be much more prepared to assist should a visitor fall ill here in the temple if I understand your biological systems. 
Perhaps we should stay somewhere other than the temple, so that if we fall ill, we'll have control over what medical care we accept. Just because you're providing us room and board doesn't mean you own us, snarled Magdalena. She turned to face the medic. I don't know you, and I sure as hell don't trust you. Elenin, now. Elenin took her time washing her hair. Buck liked her, as he put it, fresh as a millen, millen being a word she translated as some sort of flower in her head. She spent as much time bathing as she could, submerging the bracelet for as long as she could on the off chance the water would damage it. Elenin tried again to stretch her skin suit under the bracelet, but there were some sort of extrusions that went into her skin, and the suit just went around them. At least there was water for bathing at this way station. Usually there was just some sort of odd cubicle that soundlessly shook the dirt off. She stayed in the bath even after the water cooled, planning and replanning how she could make her way free of Buck. Asking for help from people around them was impossible. Most people that she interacted with were distant, put off by the robes she wore in public which Buck explained as a religious necessity to some and as a safety measure to keep her from infecting people to others. What little bits of information she had been able to gather reinforced the idea that they were actually not more than a few days' journey from the temple by road and a matter of minutes by flitter. After a few weeks, she realized that they were visiting a town they had already passed through and Elenin remembered Buck's words about doing the loop. It was likely they'd visit the same towns in sequence until they found whoever they were supposed to meet. This meant that, thankfully, they would stay close to the temple until that meeting occurred. Elenin was consumed by the need to get back to the temple. While her daughter was adept at survival, she didn't have the skills necessary to cope with staying at the temple long term. Escaping was impossible with the bracelet, though, which meant that getting back to the temple in Hutlam had to involve Buck either letting her go voluntarily or coming with her. Elenin was leaning towards getting him to go with her as it seemed the option with the most chance of success. She got out of the bath, stood on a small circle on the floor, and braced herself as a blast of warm air from the ceiling dried her skin. She pulled on her robes and hood and went to the main room, standing silently until Buck motioned for her to sit down. Paolo, now. Paolo stood quietly watching Magdalena closely as she railed against the last and the medic. She had already collapsed once this morning, exhausted from worry and fear, as well as off balance from spending too much time in phase trying to avoid capture. Paolo kept his feet planted firmly, ready to catch her if she started to fall. Part of him was laughing at the sheer madness of finding himself in some archaic chivalrous role that was more suited to a soap opera than his own life. The rest of him was watching the green-robed last, the small, gray-clad minion, and the very annoying doctor. One thing that Burston had taught him was to watch carefully, before choosing fight or flight. Paolo was unsure how much the service knew of his own particular skills. Phasing had been difficult to control at first, 
But like his cellmates, he had learned to shift from this time to another, from visible to not, in an instant. At first they had all simply used phasing to avoid the growlers, but then Fran had started phasing further and further, into deeper levels, flickering in and out of sight and documenting the details. How visible each level of phase was, how cold, how much impact someone in that level of phase could have on the world of here and now, exactly how much time shifted in each level, how much slower those in real time got, and how sped up those in phase became. Those in phase were actually out of sync with time in the here and now, faster. The deeper the level of phase, the faster time went, and the slower real time ticked by. It was a bit ironic, but as the growlers were endlessly trying to experiment on the visitors, the visitors were experimenting on themselves. Fran was the most fearless, but Paolo thought that might be because she had been the most changed. She'd only talked to him once about what her time had been like before she'd found him and David, but he had gotten the idea that she'd slipped out of the growler's grasp over and over and had been caught over and over. Fran herself didn't know exactly what had been done to her during the endless growler experiments. Paolo had seen her drop down seven meters and land like a cat. He wondered how much human was left in her. He could have just been imagining things, though. Paolo was the first to admit that his memories of Burston were a bit fuzzy. He'd been taken later than the others and had spent most of the time just trying to breathe in the oppressive air and keep up with the escape plan as it evolved. After Paolo was pulled forward, he had no idea what phasing was and spent what seemed to be weeks on his own, seemingly ignored by the growlers and barely surviving on the putrid moss that covered the walls. One day he wandered into a small, dim room and saw a lump on the ground shaking he backed up into the doorway and watched. After a while, the shivering stopped. Paolo stayed in the doorway, motionless, waiting. The lump extended something, an arm, with an apparently human hand at the end. The hand groped around on the floor, then the wall, tearing off a bit of the clammy moss that seemed to exhaust whatever it was because the hand fell to the ground and lay still. Paolo watched for another few minutes, then silently walked forward, peering in the dimness at the figure on the floor. It lay still. He couldn't see any movement that could be construed as breath. Paolo crouched down and looked closely at whatever it was. It shifted, and Paolo started a bit, and then held himself rigidly still. It was human. That was a face, there, a filthy one, but a face nonetheless. Paolo said hello softly. Hola. No response. Paolo spoke a bit louder. Hey. Hola. Vos está bem. The person gave a shout and pushed themselves away from Paolo, weakly raising their hands in defense. Paolo tried to reassure them. Está certo. Meu nome é Paolo. Their arms lowered a bit and Paolo could see their face. A man's face, with Asian features and a sparse beard, peering at him and blinking slowly in the dim light. English? asked the man in a hoarse voice. 
Paolo could not place his accent, but he quickly replied, English. The man lowered his hands with a gasp and said, with tears starting to stream down his face, David, call me David. Paolo. David breathed in deeply, shuddering in relief, then coughed. Do you have food? No, the plant. Paolo gestured towards the moss on the walls. Not good, it makes you sick. You eat the green. Paolo made no mention of how sick he had become before he learned that. Eat the green, okay. David's eyes fell shut and he slumped down. Paolo half caught him and leaned him up against the wall. Paolo took a deep breath and then settled in. One of them needed to stay awake and it looked like it was him. Fran found them a few days later. David saw her first as her face appeared white and floating in the endless dark of the doorway. They were still in the same room. David was too weak to move very far, and Paolo spent most of his time gathering what moss was edible and trying to find a source of clean water. The two men had spent hours talking in hushed voices, trading information. Paolo had been a construction worker in Brazil, and David was an author from Japan. David was desperate to get back home to his wife. She won't understand. I was in my office, writing, and then everything went black. How will she know where I am? She'll think I left her. After a while, Paolo started steering the conversation away from Earth. Talking about where they came from just worked David into a frenzy to get back. It was a relief when Fran found them. David gave a hoarse shout when he saw her, a pale face with a bald head, seemingly disembodied, hovering. She blinked as Paolo whirled around to see what David was shouting at, and then the two men saw her hand slide into view, and one finger was held to her lips. Paolo felt tears come to his eyes, and he slowly put his hands out in front of him, palms up. He tried to smile. David tried to sit up, but couldn't muster the strength. Fran came all the way into the room, and the men saw that her skin suit was completely black, making her effectively invisible in the dark. Only her uncovered skin could be seen. She pulled a pack off her back and opened it, taking out a metal container and opening the lid. The room filled with a wonderful smell, close to mushrooms, and Fran took a drink from the container, then handed it to Paolo. Paolo sniffed at the steam rising from the container, then drank. It was the most incredible thing he'd tasted in his life. There was the taste of the moss, but also an earthy, rich taste. And Paolo swallowed two gulps, then kneeled down to help David drink. Stopping himself from drinking any more of the soup and putting the container to David's mouth was more difficult than he thought it would be. David drank a few mouthfuls, and Paolo handed the soup back to Fran. She gestured for him to keep it. He felt himself tear up again. It was not as much the soup as the relief of meeting someone kind, of knowing there was hope, and that somewhere in this horror show there was food and warmth. Fran waited until they had both drunk all the soup and then slowly moved over to David's side, leaned down, and offered her arm. Paolo took his other side, and together they got David to his feet. 
Fran put her hand on her own chest and said in a soft whisper, Fran, Paolo, David, this area is too close to the central lab. Come with me and we'll get you somewhere safe and warm. Paolo was not sure how Fran knew her way through all the twists and turns of the dank black hallways. They spent the next hour walking a bit, then hiding inside rooms to avoid growlers, then walking more. Finally, they came into a hallway that felt warmer. Fran stopped at a recessed door and opened it soundlessly. Light spilled into the hallway, and she moved the men quickly inside. She shut the door, and the men blinked and looked around themselves, uncertain in the bright light. The room was lit with some sort of glowing ball stuck on the walls and ceiling. Green and blue moss covered the walls, and the room was warmer still. There was another door on the opposite wall from where they came in. Fran went to the door and knocked in a pattern. The door swung inward, and the men saw a tall blonde woman standing in the doorway. Behind her, a woman and a little girl sat at a table, playing cards. The tall woman backed up, letting them into the room. Fran spoke softly. Ladies, this is Paolo and David. Gentlemen, this is Magdalena, Elenin, and her daughter. We're having a discussion about what her daughter's name is right now. Elenin came forward quickly, seeing them supporting David. Magdalena murmured something that Paolo didn't catch, and suddenly they were all smiling and crying and hugging. Paolo looked around the room in wonder. It was well lit, with more of the glowing balls of light stuck to the walls and the ceiling. There was rough furniture made from what looked like old equipment and beds of moss along one wall. A small trickle of water ran out of a pipe in the wall into a metal barrel, and a notch in the lip of the barrel let the overflow run off and into a pot nearby that was suspended over what looked like glowing tubes. Paolo peered into the pot and smelled the same soup he had drunk from the container. It's not exactly gourmet food, but it keeps you alive, said the dark-haired woman Fran had introduced as Magdalena. Compared to the moss, it is amazing. What's in it? asked Paolo. Moss, fungus, and some sort of hopping thing that lives a few levels down. There are more levels? Where are we? What is this place? He heard his voice rising. Shh, said the little girl. You are safe and warm right here and now, but you can't yell or throw things because we're here under radar. She looked at him sternly. We don't want the growlers to come and get us, so we stay quiet mouses. You have to be a quiet mouse. Use signals here. This means hello. The child made a quick movement with her left hand and then repeated it more slowly. This means hello, and you learn it so you can be a mouse. Paolo looked at the little girl and felt his anger drain out of him. Okay, quiet as mouse. Over the next few weeks and months, they all learned much more than just how to keep quiet. They figured out how to sabotage the growler's equipment so they couldn't bring anyone else forward, and then slowly learned how to group up and take down the growlers one at a time. Fran was the best at destroying equipment. 
She would phase up just one level, then invisibly start taking apart equipment. Anything that was covered by a skin suit was visible or invisible based on the phase status of the wearer. Fran had a favorite tool, a sort of sledgehammer with one sharpened corner. She would pick it up, stretch her skin suit out to cover it, phase up a level, then use the sharp corner to pry open machinery until she could strike it with the hammer part. The growlers would run around frantically trying to repair the equipment that was being mysteriously destroyed as Fran ran from panel to panel, opening, smashing, opening, smashing. It was Fran that discovered that the skin suits were basically indestructible. They repelled flame, cold, water, and toxins, though the visitors' bodies could be bruised underneath their suits if the blows were hard enough. The visitors' days were filled with drills and phase practice, shifting between time and learning the repercussions of mixing up the here and now with phased existence. The first three phase levels were fairly harmless. You could phase into invisibility to anyone in real time, but for those in phase, time just seemed to slow down a little bit more each level in. At phase three, most blows could be dodged, and while someone in real time could still bump into an unseen, unprepared phase person at these lower levels, it would just cause a bit of a shock and that was it. The next three phases moved the person into the visible spectrum again. They could be seen and touched by anyone in real time, though the blast back from touching an unprepared phase between the times could knock the lower phased person back. Phase time moved faster. Real time moved slower. Fran spent weeks in Burston clocking the differences, making charts of notes and muttering to herself about her lack of math skills. She was the best person to figure phasing out, as no matter how deeply she went into phase, she always knew exactly how deep she was in and how far away she was from true here and now. Fran, Maggie, and David could phase into pretty high levels, but Paolo could not. He could get to level 13, but after that he got dizzy and weak. Maggie could phase all the way up to 19 levels, David up to somewhere in the 20s, and no one knew how high Fran could go. Every three levels, the phased person flipped from visible to invisible, though the visible version of the person at higher levels suffered a bit of distortion. Paolo was adept at figuring out exactly what level of phase a visible person was on, based on how fuzzy, clear, shifted, windblown, or just downright distorted they were. Paolo spent months trying to increase his phase level while simultaneously trying to get a decent breath in. His extra efforts allowed him to watch the others and learn what each phase looked like. It was endlessly confusing, as someone in a higher level of phase could always see those in levels below them, including the here and now people out of phase. But lower levels could only see higher phased if they were on a visible level. Once the growler's equipment was ruined, Fran and David spent most of their time grouping clumps of the other visitors together, teaching them to phase or take others into phase, then sending them up top and over the wall to freedom. Fran was obsessed with finding all of the other visitors and making sure that no one was left behind. She refused to leave until the rest of the visitors were over the wall, 
to whatever safety existed outside the lab. It seemed to Paolo that it took forever before the six of them were the last ones left and the only ones that needed to escape. By the time they were ready to leave, the growlers were panicked. Their experiments had seemingly disappeared into nowhere. Their equipment was smashed to pieces, and they themselves seemed to be vanishing one by one. Standing here and now at the temple, with Magdalena yelling at their new captors, it was hard for Paolo to believe that they had actually gotten free from that hell. He was worried that they were now in a new one. His eye caught an odd movement behind the last. It was the little one, the one wearing gray. It was completely covered by the robe and hood, but it looked humanoid. He shifted his gaze out of focus a bit and then let it settle on the minion. There, that movement again. It almost looked like the visitor hand sign for recognition. If that sign was done with the smallest of movements, and under a clumsy robe. Paolo froze and felt himself go hot, and then cold. Small. A small humanoid being, making a discreet visitor sign of recognition. Elena's daughter. Sigh now. Lucent Sanctuary. Punjar. Sai put the last of his notes in his carry-all and scanned the room one last time for anything he might be leaving behind by mistake. Living with Osei at the temple while keeping up a full roster of work here at the Lucent Sanctuary on Punjar was not easy on either the heart or the mind. He shrugged and gave up, knowing that it was likely he was forgetting something important. The hallway outside his room was quiet and still, and Sai savored the peaceful walk to the outside patio leading to the flitter pad. He usually flew himself to the starport and was surprised to see a flitter waiting for him, with a uniform attendant smiling and holding the door open. Sai smiled at the attendant, stopped, and absent-mindedly patted his pocket. He turned as if to go back inside and dropped suddenly to the ground, feeling the heat of a pulse beam slice through the air above him. The shot shattered a light on the wall, and Sai shouted for help as the attendant advanced steadily, firing shot after shot as Sai rolled behind a potted tree. Alarms finally sounded, and the attendant fired one last shot, then leapt on board the flitter, accelerating away as guards rushed out onto the pad. Lucent! exclaimed a guard as he saw Sai crouched behind the pot. Are you all right? Get after him! Stop fussing, I'm fine! A tall, muscular man in the soft, white outfit of a lucent ran out onto the path. Sigh! What happened? Are you hurt? No, by the faces, stop focusing on me and find that man! The air guard is already on it! What happened? I found a flitter waiting to take me to the starport, complete with attendant. Except for whoever set this up forgot to renew the license tag on the flitter. It was enough for me to hesitate, and he started firing. What kind of enemies is that man of yours developing? The petty kind that goes after the partner when their main prey is out of reach. Fran, then. Fran let her hand run along the dirt of the wall, forcing herself to notice the packed texture and occasional root. This was what was left when the stone was removed, when all the rooms on that level were torn down, when all that was left was the stone of the floor, and another level had been demolished. 
She squinted up at the sky far above, seven levels above if she had counted correctly as she destroyed their old prison's underground rooms. She was deep in phase, so the sky looked odd. She avoided looking down at the small hole she had just chipped away in the floor. Fran was at the bottom of a huge pit. The walls of the pit were a bit uneven, where rooms had jutted out a bit or the dirt of the walls had come loose and had tumbled down. The only stone left was a ramp of rocks circling the inside of the hole that made do for a way out of the pit. And there was the stone of the floor. She kneeled down and looked at the hole she had chipped. There was dirt underneath. Fran went to the center of the pit and raised the pickaxe. She had lost track of the number of axes she'd gone through. They kept appearing at the top of the ramp, along with food and even once a soft gray robe. The axe struck the stone again and again, cracking and shattering it away. She stopped and pulled up a chunk of rock. Dirt. Dirt underneath. She was at the bottom. She felt her knees give way, and she knelt down, touching the dirt again and again as she felt herself start to cry, then sob in earnest. Fran let herself weep for a minute and then gathered herself together as best she could and faced all the way back down into the here and now. It took some effort after so long in phase. Methodically, systematically, she faced a level one and looked carefully around the inside of the pit. She was alone. She phased up another level, looked around, and saw that she was still alone. Fran kept phasing level after level, looking carefully around each time until she reached a level where her sight was too distorted to see properly. She called out then, and her voice came booming from her like an avalanche. Sound behaved strangely in phase. No one answered. Above Fran, at the edge of the pit, the locals had gathered, their tails flicking and their small paws folded on their bellies as they sat on their haunches. They had watched and waited these last six months, keeping the monster well stocked with supplies. Now she was at the bottom of things and they were curious what would happen now. They saw her disappear into phase and cycle through visible and invisible. Sometimes she was blurry. Some of them tried to keep count of how many times she came and went from sight, but she was too fast, and they lost count. They heard her call out, her voice unrecognizable as anything they knew, and they saw the stone piles tremble. They backed away from the edge of the pit a bit then, but stayed close. The monster was finishing its work. Such things should be witnessed. Fran phased and phased, looking around when she could and calling when she could not. At one point, she shifted into a level where her feet started sinking into the stone she was standing on. She kept phasing, though, higher and higher, looking, calling, searching. She phased until she stretched her mind to phase another level higher and instinctively knew that the next phase was wrong. If she phased again, she would go somewhere no longer safe somewhere she couldn't return from. Fran always knew how far away she was from the here and now, and she was at the very edge of where she could safely travel. Fran felt herself slowly ease away from the transition, shifting down a few levels 
and backing away from too much, too late. She gently phased down, appearing and disappearing and seeing everything slowly shifting into normal. When she got all the way back to the here and now, she stood for a long moment, feeling herself breathe and looking at the dirt visible through the hole in the floor. Fran sat down suddenly, let the axe fall from her hand, and felt herself start to shake. She heard herself sobbing as if from a distance and wondered if there was a way back from where she had dug herself to. Her son was not here. He had not been pulled forward. She had not found him hurt or dead. He had not been tortured or cold or freezing or scared. He was not caught in phase, wandering in search of the here and now. Her lovely, cherished son was back on earth. He had grown up safe and sound with his father. He had long since become a man and lived his life, and he had long, long ago turned to dust. She put her hand down and touched the dirt again. Then tears still streaming down her face and racked with sobs, she got back on her feet and started demolishing the rest of the floor. Ose, now. Ose took a deep breath and let himself blink slowly a few times before answering the visitor. Her wrath was real. However, she looked exhausted, and whatever battle she was gearing up for was likely to cause more damage than solutions. Medic Srilla, perhaps it's best for us to restrain from assuming that the visitors would like to participate in any testing at this point. Ose tilted his head towards Magdalena. Would it be possible for us to revisit the subject in a week or two? Perhaps by then we will have earned a bit of trust, or at least explained to their satisfaction why we feel such tests important at this juncture. Magdalena let out her breath and turned away, shaking her head. Ose counted that as a win, given the level of anger she had been displaying. He bowed to her and the male visitor next to her, and slowly wandered over to the kitchen area to check on the level of supplies. Everything the visitors did was endlessly fascinating, including what supplies they used and what they did not. They seemed to have used up all the mammal-based proteins and left the rest. They cooked all the solid-colored vegetables but left anything multicolored. Perhaps you should cook something a bit outside their experience so they could learn. He reached up and took down a brace of cool rets from where they were hanging above the cooker and reached for the dial to turn on the heat. Please don't cook those. Osei turned around to see a visitor standing behind him. This one was called David. He had been quite weak when he was brought in, and Osei was glad to see him on his feet. Please don't cook those, repeated David. While I don't mind the smell, most of the people here find the odor they release when heated repugnant. Really, mused Osei. Thank you for letting me know, and may I say your standard is impeccable. There's not a lot to do here other than study standard and sleep. Perhaps we could get access to outside news or be able to experience a bit more of the temple grounds. Osei knew that was impossible at this point. The visitors didn't know it. But the service did not actually have any real legal justification to imprison the visitors. The Galactic Court had ruled them as sentient beings with full rights and responsibilities as Galactic citizens. 
While the galaxy as a whole knew that the service was seeking out and questioning the visitors, there was an unspoken, unacknowledged blindness on the part of the galaxy when it came to the fact that the visitors were being kept locked up at the temple. Letting the visitors out to wander around the temple where they could interact with the general public would be disastrous. It was far better to keep the visitors out of sight and out of mind until the first was found. Then they could all be released to find whatever livelihood they wanted. Right now, the service was supporting every visitor they found financially. The visitors were fed, housed, clothed, given pocket money. That would change once the first was found. Once the first was located, the visitors would be expected to make their own way in the galaxy. Except, of course, for the first. The first would need to fulfill the prophecy, and who knew how long that would take? Osei felt a familiar twinge. There was a lot of discussion about what the first's role would be in the prophecy. There was some last that questioned whether the first would even survive the fulfillment process. Last Osei had come to know a few of the visitors quite well, and he hated to think of any of them under duress or in pain. He hoped yet again that the first was found soon, found easily, and that the prophecy was simple to fulfill with no loss of life or limb. Osei looked at David and said his standard phrase, I'll check on that. Perhaps we can find a way to make your time here more pleasant. David looked at him quietly, and Osei searched his face for a clue as to what he was thinking. Whatever it was, David kept it to himself. He turned to leave, and Osei saw his gaze sweep over the room, then freeze. David smiled for just a moment, his face lighting up. Then it was gone, and David walked away without another word. Osei held still, marking where David had been looking. After David had moved all the way across the room, Osei turned to look at what had caused such a reaction. The two visitors from earlier talking to his offered? Osei could not imagine what would make a visitor so elated. Probably not the two visitors that he'd been living with for the last month here at the temple which left his offered. Elenin, now. Elenin sat at the wooden table of the latest inn they were staying at and tried to see well enough through the mesh of her hood to pick through the stew in front of her and try to find the red bits. They were at least palatable. One thing about the food in the here and now, it was certainly easy to keep one's figure. Most of it was disgusting. Buck had gone out a few hours before, looking gleeful and chortling about things taking off. We're all set now, my princess, my prize. We're all set now. Take a bath, get yourself some food, and get ready for some fun. Elenin had an idea of what Buck considered fun, and she turned her mind away from the thought. She sat at the table, methodically trying to eat enough food to keep her strength up. The door to the inn opened and Buck came in, laughing, with an arm around the shoulders of a small woman in what looked like a red skin suit. Another, even smaller, blue skin suit-clad woman was right behind them. Elenin looked at them and held her breath. What were they thinking? Wearing their skin suits out in public? They'd be scooped up in a minute by any number of people eager for the reward earned by finding a visitor. Ellie, Ellie, howled Buck. Look who's here, our dear friends, Busset and Eulish. 
Come on, ladies, let's have a drink. Ooh, Bucksters, you cracked me up. Ooh, is this her? She's all covered up now, Bucky. Why is she all covered up? Don't you worry about her. She's fine. She'll be even finer once we get to where we're going, won't she? The three of them laughed, and when the innkeeper vaulted out from behind the front counter with a pulse gun in hand and shouted, Halt! Visitors, stop right there! They laughed even louder. Oh, Bucky, he's got a pulser. What will we do? snickered the smaller of the woman. Step away from the visitors, sir. This pulse gun is only set to stun, but I won't hesitate to use it, commanded the innkeeper. Step away, step away, sputtered Buck. He pulled up his sleeve, showing a green skin suit. Why you want to separate me from my peoples? Now that I think of it, hey, Ellie, take off that stupid robe and get over here. Buck's eyes narrowed as Elenin stayed seated. Now, woman. Elenin stood up and wished for the millionth time that she could phase. She took off her hood, then let the robe fall down to the floor. A gasp was heard in the room as she stood there in her skin suit. It's black. Look at that. It's completely black. She's not a visitor. Is that a bomb bracelet? Visitors wear green, blue, red, yellow. That's black. She's not a visitor. Look at her, she's not a visitor. Of course she's a visitor, roared Buck. She's just an evil one. The evil ones have black skin suits. That's why she has the bracelet. We're bringing her to the temple to turn her into the service and they can lock her up. Do you want her running loose? Buck glared at the crowd. Do you? Elenin saw her chance. She thanked all the gods that were, are, and will be for their obvious intervention. She drew herself up to her full height and snarled at Buck. You may have caught me. You may have restrained me, but I will destroy you and this galaxy. I swear it. She tossed her hair and let her gaze sweep around the room. The crowd murmured and backed away from her. Buck stared at her and then burst into laughter. Bussett and Eulish cheered and clapped. And the innkeeper pointed the pulse gun at her and pulled the trigger. End of chapter three. Your voice like velvet on the small of my back. Your eyes like fire in my skin. Well, you're gone now, darling. You'll leave me with all that I lack. Hold a cold cup of coffee while the room slowly spins Yeah, you're gone, gone, gone again Like a deep color fading slowly that's how your love begins Like an all of a feather arrow Like scattered water On noonday skin Like smoke curling into your vision Hard to see when the details go wrong 
by the time I thought to look to my heart, it was gone, gone. Your voice like velvet on the small of my back. Your eyes like fire in my skin. Well, you're gone now, darling. You leave me with all that I lack. Hold a cold cup of coffee while the room slowly spins. A stone slowly sinking from sight. Your love slips out at night. Like a thief stealing off with tomorrow. Like a thin cold silence in the pale morning light. Like a face you don't know in the mirror. Where and when did the real you go? Will I take you back when when you show up? Sorry again, I don't know. Don't know. Your voice like velvet Your eyes like fire in my skin. Why you gone now, darling? You leave me with all that I lack. Hold a cold cup of coffee while the room slowly spins. everyone, Pamela here. This section is Q&A for Duck, Chapter 3. Thanks everybody for listening to this podcast. Uh, I really appreciate it. If you've got questions, please feel free to send them. You can reach me at duckhereandnow at gmail.com or you can search for the group Duck Duck Goose on Facebook. I've also started a Patreon patreon.com forward slash Pamela Zero, all one word, and you can message me directly there as well. So let's get to it. I got a question about how much of Duck is based on my own life experiences, and that's a great question. I had to sit down and really think it through. Um, I think there are three main areas that I pull from when I write, and this kind of applies to anything whether it's it's music or fiction. The first area is ideas, and the second area is dreams, and the third area is real life. So I'm going to break them down and go, go into each one. So for the first area, ideas, this kind of 
uh, hooks up to a concept I have about art and creation being similar to breathing. So you breathe in and then you process all of those chemicals and gases in your body and then you breathe out something changed. So in my mind, I have art as something where you breathe in the world. So every experience you have that's coming into you is valuable. And every idea that you have coming into you is valuable, whether you notice it or not. So sometimes it means getting out of your normal patterns of the day. You go for a walk, you go on a trip, you travel to another country, or you read a new book, you go see a movie. Everything that you do in your day is breathing in until you um, breathe out again. And breathing out again is when you actually create. You write something, you sing, you dance, you sew, whatever art form you're doing. And, and the way this works out for me is that I do try to get as much into me that is outside my comfort zone as possible. And then I just let it go. I think it percolates inside me and I do my little chemical exchanges inside my subconscious, wherever they are. And then it comes out as an idea. Duck showed up as um, a whole person idea of this small child in a cafeteria. She looked exactly like she looks in the book. She sounds exactly like she sounds. Um, she came whole and a lot of ideas come that way. So that's the first place that I get um, the content of duck from. And then the second place I get the content of duck from is dreams. And dreams are really, really good for starting to break down ideas into actual flow of events. I know that sounds a little crazy because dreams are sometimes really odd and wacky uh, and the flow of events in dreams is sometimes doesn't make sense at all, but there are little chunks in there where it's extremely vivid and the process of, you know, standing up and walking across the room and opening up a door is just etched in some kind of brilliant clarity. So a lot of the times with dreams, I'll go ahead and take that understanding of a step-by-step -step reality and apply it to something in art that can reflect that depth of perception that a, that a dream can, can bring to the table. And then the last area that I pull from is real life. And that is almost 100% emotional. Everything that's in the book, where I go through emotions, uh, well, not where I go through them, where Duck or Fran or Ellen goes through an emotion, that's being pulled from my real life. So for example, there's Fran searching for her son. And she's doing the whole process and digging down and she's not sure if he's there. And she's worried sick and she's going through all these heroics in her mind and her body to get and make sure that that he's okay as a mom i've had enough experience worrying about my son uh who's you know grown and, and, and quite successful now in his life but i do remember being so worried for him um everything from he's home late to school shooter to going 
out by himself downtown for the first time with friends. All of that is an experience that I can draw from emotionally when I'm writing. And I I tend to get quite emotional when I'm actually writing these things too, which helps, to be honest. So those are the three places that these things come from. Most of the relationships between the people come as ideas. Most of the actual nuts and bolts um, come from either me literally walking around doing things to try to catch the steps of anything from you know drinking soup to walking across a room. And most of the feelings come from my real life. Okay, the next question was about the Thridians and their backstory. Why did they pull the humans forward? Why Earth? Why these particular humans? So the Thridians are the race that pulled the visitors into the future. And in the book, I give the reason for doing so as curiosity, which is half true and half misleading. Yeah, the Thridians are incredibly curious, but it's not curiosity based on wonder. It's curiosity based on a compelling need for them to be able to move through time. The Thridians started their experiments because they were trying to change their past. The whole thing started a couple of generations ago when a Thridian discovered some fossilized bones in a really far away secluded area on Thrid, their home planet. And the bones were huge and millions of years old. And the crazy thing was they were incredibly similar to the bones of a Thridian. They were just much, much larger. The Thridian scientists eventually decided that they were the bones of their ancestors and that over the millennia, their race had shrunk. Now, the Thridians are an aggressive species. Well, were an aggressive species. And the idea that they had once been much larger was extremely appealing. Larger meant more powerful. More powerful meant more able to fight. More able to fight meant the ability to build an effective army. And an army meant the possibility of taking over other planets. So with their little, not little, but kind of big, lumpy, oozing bodies and their tendency to take the easier path in all ways, the Thridians hadn't really ever had a remote chance of doing anything more than living out their lives on their own home world. So the idea of conquering other planets set their entire culture aflame. They started accumulating knowledge and equipment and actually changed their cultural norms, trying to figure out how to get back in time to when they were larger so that they could study and maybe even breed with their enormous ancestors and then come back into the here and now. And then they could build an army of supersized Thridians. After some spectacular failures, they actually shifted their focus into just bringing one of the ancestors into the present. Well, they didn't get their ancestors. Who knows how many races from how many planets, from how many different times they wound up pulling forward. But when they pulled forward the humans from Earth, it was random. Nothing special about Earth. Nothing special about the people they pulled. The Thridians found a target back in time that they could lock onto, and they spent a few months pulling forward beings. They were the wrong beings, but... As the Thridians were still fine-tuning the process, every being that lived taught them something. So they did a hundred or so pulls just to double-check the process. 
Now, this information didn't make its way to the Galactic Council when the trials were held to determine the punishment for the Thridians for pulling the visitors forward. As a result, no one in the galaxy really ever knew the real reason for the experiments and the resulting demise of the Thridian race. So, that's a little bit of backstory on the Thridians. I'm putting up a short story that covers a bit more about this on Patreon this weekend, so keep an eye out for that. Okay, I think that wraps it up for this week. Um, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I really hope you like it. And please feel free to send me an email with questions and comments. My email is duckhereandnow at gmail.com. You can do a search on Facebook for Duck Duck Goose. And Patreon is patreon.com forward slash Pamela Zero, all one word. I'll keep an eye out everywhere for your questions and comments. Thanks so much, you guys. I'll be back next week with another chapter. Until then, stay well, everyone. <laughs>